Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. This afternoon, this is maybe a little less of a sermon and maybe a little bit more of a devotional as we look at a particular attribute of God. This is going to be a bit of a topical study this afternoon. We're going to be looking at several different passages as we study one of God's attributes. Let's study the attributes of God. Why study an attribute of God? Why well, recently was teaching with our student ministry through uh, the attributes of God and was just amazed, amazed week in and week out at the many implications that it had for my own worship and for my own life. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Which I think in many ways is a very true statement. And yet, it's easy for us often to think wrongly about God. Because we serve and learn about a God ultimately that is incomprehensible, infinitely beyond us, impossible for us to fully grasp. It's easy for us to think wrong, wrongly about God. One example of that would be sometimes we can come to the attributes with the approach of thinking that it's impossible for us to really know God. And there's an element of truth that's helpful to us there that, that it's impossible for us to, to fully know God. It's impossible for our minds to comprehend all that he is. And yet, God's word is clear. In Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah writes, let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he knows and understands God. That, that we, we can understand God as he has revealed himself to us and that we should do our best to understand him, to know him to the best of our ability as he has revealed himself in his words. We can know God. Maybe not fully. We can know him as fully as we need to, as fully as he wants us to know him during this life. In fact, knowledge about God is the only knowledge that's really worth boasting in. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me, says God. Those other errant thoughts that we can bring into study of the attributes of God, often you may hear notions along the lines of, the attributes being a, a fun study, but not really applicable to everyday life. I couldn't be further from the truth. The attributes of God are supremely applicable. In Exodus 34, Moses hears God declaring his attributes to him. And Moses' response is one in which he falls down in worship of God. Learning of the attributes of God drew Moses to worship. In Lamentations 3, we see a list of God's attributes given in the midst of trials. And the response is, therefore, because I know these attributes of God are true, therefore I have hope. Because he's faithful, because he's kind, because his mercies are new every morning, I have hope. We can think errantly in so many ways about God. Often, we make the error of thinking that God is like us. It's easy to conceive of him as being just a better version of us, to view him through a human lens. 
We're familiar with the words in Isaiah 55 where God says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So are my ways higher than your ways. I'm above you. I'm unlike you. God is entirely unlike us. Many theologians use the expression that he is wholly other. And we will certainly see that to be true as we briefly study one of his attributes tonight. The attribute that we're gonna study is the attribute of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. This attribute of God means that God needs nothing and no one outside of himself. He is self-sufficient. Now, this is one of the many ways that God is wholly other than us or entirely unlike us. Because we are not self-sufficient. We are incredibly needy people. We have difficulty even imagining something that does not have a reliant relationship upon something else. We often emphasize human independence as an admirable attribute, self-sufficiency. We lift up people that are not needy. And yet the reality is that none of us can truly or fully accomplish that. No man, no thing can be truly independent. We are all needy people. I am a needy person. I exist because of my parents. I did not die because they fed me. I survived my first winter because they put a roof over my head as a child. Everything that I did was because they funded me. I'm now married to Alyssa, who is single-handedly keeping me alive. <laughs> I'm far from proficient in the kitchen. I look at a pantry full of food and I can't find anything to eat. She takes those ingredients and makes wonderful things, ensuring not just that I eat, but that I eat things that won't kill me. Most of us needed a vehicle to get here tonight. We need income. We need a functioning immune system. We are needy people. Even the most dependent soul imaginable still needs food and water and shelter and clothing and a thousand other things. But God is holy and entirely unlike us. The attribute of self-sufficiency communicates that God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. Some theologians call this the independence of God. It's a good word. Your dictionary defines independence in this way. Not depending on another for livelihood or subsistence. Now applied to its fullest sense, nothing is truly independent. Everything and everyone necessarily finds its cause and sustenance in something else. Everything except God. God does not rely upon, depend on, or need anything or anyone. We have a self sufficient God. Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, which is a city that is filled with idolatry. And while Paul was in Athens, he was reasoning with some Jews and Gentiles and a group of philosophers give him an opportunity to present his beliefs. When Paul is given this opportunity to present his beliefs, surrounded by various Jews, Gentiles, and philosophers, he takes advantage of it. He proceeds to correct their understanding of God. Athens was a pagan city, but it was very religious. What's interesting for us to note in this speech that we're about to look at by Paul to these philosophers 
that his first agenda, as he's attempting to correct their understanding of God, his first agenda is to make sure that they know that God is self-sufficient, that God doesn't need anything. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. We'll get a running start in verse 23. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Those are a series of statements about God's self-sufficiency. In this highly religious city, the first correction that needed to be made was that God didn't need them. It's fascinating to look at the, the first building block of his argument as he affirms the self-sufficiency of God. Look again at the beginning of verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. For Paul, the starting point of the self-sufficiency of God was the fact that God is the creator and Lord. Paul's understanding of self-sufficiency stems from the fact that everything that exists, exists because God made it. He made it all. Paul's understanding of the self-sufficiency of God begins in Genesis chapter one, verse one. That in the beginning, God created. That in the beginning, God was already there. That God is the one from whom everything else flows. He made the world. All of life comes from him. All existence comes from him. He is the only one whose existence does not depend on another which is a similar attribute of God called the self-existence of God. It's certainly connected to God's self-sufficiency. Paul's starting point for the self-sufficiency of God is that he is the one that created it all. God is not one of the many beings among whom he is just a greater version. God is the creator. He is the creator. This is a key, this truth is a key motivator behind biblical worship. You read through the Psalms and regularly we see the psalmist writing about the creation that God has, has given and then redirecting that praise to God, not to the creation, but to the creator. In Revelation chapter four, as we approach the last days, we read this, worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power, why? Why is he worthy? Because you have created all things. And because of your will, they existed. And because of your will, they were created. Paul's message of the self-sufficiency of God depends on the fact that everything in the world owes its very existence to God. He continues, he doesn't just speak of the fact that God created, look later in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He continues to state not just God's role of creating, but also his position as Lord. Everything on heaven and earth falls under his authority. 
He didn't just make it and walk away. He rules over it. He is Lord of it all. It's all God's. It's all his. Paul's carefully weaving an argument about the self-sufficiency of God. And he, he begins with an emphasis about the self-deficient world. The world and all that is in it needed a creator. As Paul is explaining that God doesn't need us, his first emphasis is that everything actually needs him. Everything needs him for its very existence. It needs a creator. It has a Lord ruling over it. God is entirely unlike us. We need a creator. We need a Lord. But he's entirely unlike us. He is the creator. He is the Lord. Because of these truths, Paul concludes in verse 24 that the God who made the world, and since he is the Lord, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Remember, he's speaking to a pagan but religious people. And his message to them is your temples, they don't contain God. The God who created the world obviously cannot be contained within a temple. He created the world. You think your temples can hold God? The creation does not contain the creator. He is not limited by his own creation, let alone the things that man has built, such as temples. 1 Kings 8 echoes a similar sentiment when it says, does God dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him. He is above his creation. So Paul, Paul says, your temples don't hold this God. He goes further, look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Um, Paul in this statement is not saying that, that we don't or that we can't serve God from our perspective. He's saying that God is not in a position of needing to be served. God doesn't need service. Our hands cannot perform anything for him that he is lacking. He has all the power. He has all power. In many senses, from a logistical standpoint, our involvement in this whole process is nothing more than us just getting in the way. If God chooses to involve us in something, it's not because he needs our help. It's not as if he needed anything. It's because he's doing something in us while he involves us. My son Ezekiel is three years old and whenever we're doing projects around the house, he, he likes to help out. Likes to have a, a tool belt and uh, chip away at whatever project it is that we're currently working on. It's never helpful. <laughs> it's never helpful. But there are times when it's profitable for me to bring my son along in a project that we're, that we're working on in the house. Not because I need his help, but because there's, there's actually some relational benefit to to being in, in, in that process. And the, the, that benefit is not that I gain anything in regards to his assisting in completion of the project, but rather that it's valuable for me as a dad to spend time with my son. 
We, we, don't, we don't offer anything to God. He doesn't need us. He's not able to do more because of our help. We cannot serve him from the perspective of him needing something that we have to offer. He's self-sufficient. He has all power. He needs nothing. Look at how he wraps up in verse 25. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. Are you seeing the argument that Paul is weaving together here? He's the giver of life. He's the giver of all things. He doesn't need anything. He's self-satisfied. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need to be served. In fact, we need to be served. We're the desperate ones. Sometimes we can create an image of God in our heads where he needs our worship, where he needs our praise, where he needs our service. And that thinking can start to make our offerings of service and of worship feel like tasks that are due an employer. The problem with that thinking is that it makes God out to be a needy recipient and it makes us to be the obligated providers. And everything about that is backwards. He doesn't need us. And yet he chooses to invite us into a relationship with himself. Turn over to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, where this message, I believe, is helpfully communicated. I'm going to be in verses 7 through 13. God is speaking here, and he says this. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Pause there for a second. God initiates this conversation and he calls Israel saying, listen up. Listen up because I'm going to speak against you as your God. But before he speaks against them, he qualifies very carefully in verse eight that he's not reproving them for their sacrifices. In other words, I'm not speaking against you. I'm not rebuking you for offering sacrifices. That's obedience to the law. I'm rebuking you for how you've been offering your sacrifices. Look at verses 9 through 11. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. God is correcting those who have been offering sacrifices. But he's not correcting them because they've been offering sacrifices. He's correcting how they've been doing it. And he says to them, your flaw is not that you've offered me sacrifices. Your flaw is that you thought I needed them. 
your flaws that you thought I needed them. And what he's saying in verses 9 through 11 is, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need cows. I don't need goats. They're all mine anyways. I own all of this. You can't offer me something that I don't already have. Every bird, every creature, I know them all. They're all mine. He continues in verse 12. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. God, God, God's saying, even, even if theoretically I could be hungry, you, humanity, would not be the ones that I would run to. I'm self-sufficient. I made the world. I don't need you. Look at verse 13. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls? Or drink the blood of male goats? Their issue was not that they were obeying the law. Their issue is that they had belittled God in their minds. They didn't see him as self-sufficient. They viewed him as a needy God. So what's the response then? What's the response that he calls these people to have? Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. You see, the call after this rebuke is not to cease to offer sacrifices. It's not to cease to worship God as he had called them to do. The response is to think about worship rightly. Offer sacrifices of thanksgiving let your sacrifices flow from a thankful heart, he says. Worship the most high God as the most high God. Not as one who is needy. Think about worship rightly. It's not obligatory, uh, obligatory tasks that need to be performed. It's a response of thankfulness and praise. Look at verse 15. Call upon me. I'm the self-sufficient one. Call upon me. In the day of trouble, I shall rescue you and you will honor me. It's a tragic mistake to think wrongly about God. He rebukes his people for thinking wrongly. Even as they perform tasks that he called them to perform. One of the ways that we do this so easily we belittle God in our minds, that we think wrongly about God, is that we project ourselves upon God. It's easy to do this. It's easy to project ourselves upon God. We easily make him in our image rather than understanding us as being made in his image. And this is actually what God ultimately corrects them for. If you look down at verse 21, look at this. These things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. You thought I was like you? God's saying, I'm not, I'm not like you. I don't need these things. I'm self-sufficient. 
God is speaking to those who are offering sacrifices apart from a thankful heart. And he says, you think that I need these things? You think that I need you? You begin to study the self-sufficiency of God and it immediately becomes an attribute of God that is very belittling. Which I assure you is always the case when we study the attributes of God. But rightly understood, God's self-sufficiency doesn't cause us to think lightly of our relationship with God. In human relationships, we often find value when there is a mutual need for one another. We often value that in human relationships. There's there's a sense of of assurance and need there that, that, that we value when there's mutual need between friends. But this news that God doesn't need us is one of the most amazing things about God that we could ever come to realize. Because we often, we often abandon what we don't need. But the God who doesn't need us has exceedingly blessed us. The God who doesn't need us has called us to a relationship with him. Why would a God who doesn't need anything create us? That's the mystery. That's the mystery. He didn't create us because he suffered any lack. We don't know why. In In God's wisdom, he chose to lavish his love upon us to bring glory to himself in his perfect wisdom, but not because he needs us. Why would God choose to create a world that would demand the death of his son to redeem a people that he doesn't need? We have no idea. We have no idea, but that, that's what's so amazing about this attribute of God. He's so unlike us. Don't let the attribute of self-sufficiently cause you to think a little of your relationship with God. Let it awaken you to just how amazing that relationship is. Because we, we didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't earn it. He doesn't need us. Anytime that I've come across studies of the attributes of God, various attributes that that I've personally had the opportunity to walk through, it's been supremely applicable for my own life. I'll give you a few few walkaways from this attribute of God. Be amazed. Be amazed at the independent, self-sufficient God. This, This is an amazing attribute. This is, this is an attribute that, that, that demonstrates how completely different he is from us. It's a mind-blowing attribute. We cannot even conceive of something that is truly independent. But God is no slave to our imaginations. He's infinitely beyond us. He is an independent, self-sufficient God. That should drive us to amazement. It should drive us to be amazed at the God who is so much bigger than we can imagine. I'll give you another one. Embrace 
Embrace your neediness. Embrace your neediness. We can spend so much of our lives trying to present a picture of ourselves as independent. We're not. We're not. We're desperately needy, which is exactly what God wants us to be. The goal is not that we would rid ourselves of neediness, but rather that we would embrace it. Or Paul says it this way, that we would boast in our weakness, that we would celebrate the fact that we have nothing to offer and the God who doesn't need us initiates a relationship with us. That awareness drives us to live a life of dependence on God, of dependence upon the one who is self-sufficient. Come to this attribute and realize how different God is than I am. It drives me to be amazed and say, what a God. And it drives me to look at myself and say, wow, how much do I need him? How much do I need him? Final walk away, be, be thankful. Be thankful that the God who does not need you loves you. cannot explain why God would love me. He doesn't need me. And yet he invites me to a relationship with himself. This should drive us to our knees in thankfulness because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We have an incomprehensible God. And anytime we study his attributes, we walk away saying that doesn't make sense. But that's a good thing because he's entirely unlike us. He's not bound by our minds. He doesn't need us. We need him. Let's live lives that reflect that truth.